Check out all our new articles and content on BrewInterview.com. Follow us on Facebook at The Brew Interview. And for some quality memes, follow us on Instagram at Memes. Hello, welcome back to The Break Room, a podcast put on by The Brew Interview, UCLA's student-run contrarian publication group. Considering how chaotic and scary the world is right now, we really hope that everyone listening is safe and healthy. And as a reminder, you're never alone. You always have support. So please ask for help if you need any. My name is Shay, and I'll be your host today. Uh, in this episode, I am joined by Tao Do. Tao is a master's student at UCLA in the Fielding School of Public Health, and she actually graduated this year. She's graduating tomorrow. So welcome to the show, Tao, and congratulations on graduating. Hi, thank you for having me. Welcome. <laughs> um, so could you tell me a little bit more about your work in the field of public health and well-being for underrepresented communities? Yeah, for sure. Um, so, I mean, before grad school, I did a lot of um, work with Southeast Asian, like Asian kind of like health disparities, as well as sexual and reproductive health. Um, for a couple of years, I was an HIV counselor. Um, at a, like a local LGBT center um, back in the Bay Area, and then I kind of all those kind of experiences led me to pursue my um, master's of public health here at UCLA, and now um, a lot of my work currently, or my more recent work, is you know involved in Urban Peace Institute here. It's a nonprofit, and I work on projects involving violence prevention, specifically um, under the lens of gang violence, specifically in community safety. Um, with and for black and brown communities here in Los Angeles, as well as policy um, reform and research around youths and the juvenile criminal justice system, um, especially around mental health access and treatment. That's amazing. Yeah, and a lot of things are very on point for the issues that are going on right now. And yeah, Yeah. so we're going to touch on that throughout the interview. Um, I just want to kind of say thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. I know it's a difficult time as we're all hearing, and I know you're really busy, so this means a lot. Thank you. Cool. So um, Tao was actually a TA for a psychiatry course that a former guest, Dr. Korb, taught. And today we're going to be discussing racial biases, their impact on mental health, and ways to overcome them. So can you tell me a little bit about what made you interested in choosing the subject of neuroscience and racism to teach during class? Yeah, for sure. Um, so this class that Dr. Korb teaches is kind of like a pl- applied neuroscience class. So individualized interventions on addressing your mental wellness, your mental health, and stuff like that, such as like meditation, exercise, and stuff like that. So based on the curriculum, you know, there wasn't really a segment that really specifically focused on race and racism and its impacts on wellness and mental health. And, you know, there's you know, all these mental health disparities amongst, like, vulnerable racial groups, and, you know, the root of it is racism, and and I just felt that that couldn't really be ignored or brushed off in, like, maybe one lecture about culture when it's really about racism. So, you know, I really wanted to, I know it's a GE course, but at least I wanted to introduce kind of that there's work in neuroscience behind it, there's public health work around it, and kind of give exposure around that too students might be really relatively new to this concept and and stuff like that um i especially would have 
really wanted it when I was an undergrad here at UCLA as well. No, it's, uh, yeah, it's also very relevant with the issues, like I said before, of race that are brought to light, that are being brought to light by the Black Lives Matter movement. And mm-hmm. yeah, I kind of want to start with that. So you mentioned in your lecture that race is um, a social construct. It's learned and it's not inherent. Right. But racism is different. And um, racism is, and I quote, complex, multifaceted, multi-level, socially construct- constructed, and relative. So do you think the concept of race um, itself, is, is it meaningful and it, should it be recognized? I think that it's meaningful because the, the society we live in makes it meaningful. And it's meaningful in the, in the sense that it's capable of affecting our lives, harming others, just based on what we look like and based on what we, you know, things that we can't really change. So that's why it is meaningful. Yeah. But, you know, for a very long time, biomedicine, science, and even public health have really, like, shaped that narrative that, you know, race is somehow inherent, biological, and all the stereotypes and assumptions that come with race the negative ones specifically yeah. is somehow you know inherent in us when when it's not really true you know a lot of the genetics mm-hmm. work really shows that we're all really genetically the same but the way that our genes get expressed and our skin color the way we our facial features our hair textures all that stuff um is really what makes us different but also how society also constructs those differences based on how we look and so that's why it's really, um, you can see it across all fields that, you know, race is socially constructed. I mean, even our example of the census, for example, the way in which our government categorizes race, what they think are distinct yeah. racial groups, right? And that stuff, if mm-hmm. you say, if you're someone who's not from the U.S. and you come in, like, it's kind of a foreign concept, like, and you might be confused in what racial groups you fit in, right? maybe because other countries have different racial categories and also even across time, the senses in which mm-hmm. our racial category categories are have changed across time. So in a sense, you can argue that it, we do make it up, right? So, um, yeah, I, yeah, I think exactly. Also, uh, there's been a lot of talk about how people, sometimes they say that they don't see color. I know a lot of, like, I've seen celebrities talk about it. I don't know if you saw this one interview on Oprah where Tom Cruise talked about his son, and he said, like, his son is adopted. He's um, he's black, and he said that he doesn't see color. He just sees, you know, his son that he loves. And I feel like, I don't know, do you think that's problematic in a way? I think so. I think, in a way, you're avoiding kind of how racism can impact various parts of your life, right? And being able to say that you don't see color when, I mean, physically you can really see color, right? Like the color of the rainbow and stuff like that, right? So it's kind of silly to say that. Mm. Um, But also it's kind of, I think it also shows kind of like your ability and your privilege to kind of avoid that, avoid how much skin color can make an impact. Like it was definitely, when I was growing up, it was definitely a way to kind of quote unquote fix racism when actually we're trying to, it's definitely a means to avoid rather than address that race and racism does make it have, mm-hmm. have an impact. Yeah, I th- you said a lot between race and racism, how they're connected. How 
does how do people use race in a way that leads to racism psychologically? A lot of studies, psychology, social neuroscience like that really have like focused on that fears. Fear is predominantly kind of or how we understand racial bias and the way that we enact prejudicial behaviors and racist acts, right? Um, specifically, the key structure, brain structure that we're talking about here is like the amygdala that is involved. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people know us like involved with fear, involved with emotions, involved with our ra- reactionary behaviors, um, such as our flight and fight response. Yeah. And there is, and then our psychology is really influenced by our environment, right? So there's a lot of implicit imaging in media, in your curriculum, education, all that kind of stuff that kind of, you know, talks about race and race assumptions, you know, stereotypes and assumptions about specific races, like say somehow black folks are violent, bad, uncivilized versus whites who are quote-unquote pure or like civilized and et cetera. And those kind of associations get repeated and ingrained in our memory and um, and kind of inf- can influence our decision-making and our behavior. And usually when we associate these different races with fear and or stigma, it creates in our head kind of this process called in-grouping or out-grouping. So pretty much we kind of see certain races as bad and somehow we want to dissociate ourselves from that aka that influences our behavior makes us do um predatory behaviors that we might not be aware of um and also that particular grouping of who is in our group who isn't in our in our group can also change the way we emphasize with those groups. yeah i think it also i think you're thinking of like in grouping out grouping how when does that exactly form because you also said that you know we have these like implicit racial biases in us and that have been kind of ingrained into us like from a young age probably um yes like when exactly does it form in our heads and why why do we have these racial biases a lot of children's studies that have you know shown about racial biases even as early as nine months old or like your first year infancy somehow infants can distinguish between different racial groups right and they might not know what white or black is but they definitely know that there's the same people and there's different people from them right Mm -hmm. yeah and i think that might be evolutionary somehow beneficial back then to somehow be able to know you know who is in your side who isn't i guess to survive and stuff like that but in this case you know um, as children grow from even as young as three that can like, you know, voice these associations, um, you know, or they can voice these racial biases. It's um, a lot of studies have shown that implicit bias tests for children can even show that they can associate quote, quote, white is good or black is bad. And so there's some weird concept that children are too young to learn about race and racism. That's definitely not true. Yeah. Because I mean that's where that's where we can start, you know, intervene as well. And, you know, um they we can't yes. ignore that there's so many external factors when you're young and mm-hmm. like even in infancy that you're constantly learning, you're constantly seeing what your parents think, what they do, 
what the edu- like what media oh, does, yeah. like cartoons or the education system, mm-hmm. literature that we're fed in, really influ- really influences and kind of like builds that implicit racial bias, even though we're not really aware. But there's so many external factors really influencing our thoughts and our behaviors. I think it's really important to have these conversations with kids, even though like people think that you know kids are too young to understand this, but I don't think they are. Like they. They should know. I got, like, I, my parents talked to me about this when I was pretty young, and I feel like, and I can't speak for everybody, but mostly people of color like, have experienced some kind of, some form of racism, even as a kid, and you need to be, you know, told what exactly it is and why people would do that by your parents, because, you know, who else would? So, yeah, I think it's it's really important, but, yeah, kind of, you know, if, like, suppose someone you know, grows up in kind of a, a racist household. I feel like there's a lot of people who do, you know, and you've kind of gone with that ideal your whole life. And now you're like, you know, middle-aged or even older than that. Is there like psychologically, is there any way that you can kind of eliminate, I guess, your racial biases and your prejudices, even at that age to kind of become quote unquote anti-racist? I don't know, but, or is it like too late by then to do that? Right. That's a great question. Um, the thing is, our brain is pretty flexible and capable of unlearning, even though you might have grown up in a racist household and you hold these ideals and all that stuff. It doesn't necessarily mean you're incapable of um, you're incapable of being able to change your beliefs and your stances. Um, it might be harder for sure because you've done it for so long, and usually, you know, the longer you practice or believe in something somehow you think that holds to be true no i think it really requires it really does depend on if you're really open to understanding that there's different perspectives you know um, challenging the way you think because sometimes it's really because like you haven't really exposed yourself in different cultures um engaging with people who are different from you and and being in like some sort of bubble right um, so it's, I wouldn't say it's impossible, but it's definitely a little harder. Also depends on mm-hmm. individual motivation, wants as well. Yeah. No, that's really, that's great. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think also if you kind of, I understand that people are a result of their environment. Like it's a mix of nature and nurture, but uh, I feel like if you grow up in a kind of conservative household in a conservative town you kind of grow up like that your whole childhood and then you go to college and suddenly everything's different then that's I feel like that's a lot of people I don't know mostly yeah like from conservative places I think that's that's when they kind of realize that oh things are different and they have to change their mentality a little bit but coming from like maybe not coming from but for example like law enforcement a lot of them, I think, do hold racist ideas and biases, and that's why we're seeing what we're seeing right now. And what kind of causes people to give in to their racial biases and act upon them so violently as they do? Because I, I don't know if there's, because there must be some kind of restraint, like even if, I don't know, someone might have a bias, they don't really act on it as much. I think, I mean, going back to how I said that fear is kind of the driver, right? And um, you're conditioned mm-hmm. somehow to fear black men, black women, because of all these 
perpetuating negative assumptions that they're harmful, violent, when it's totally not true, right? And so we, if for somehow we convince ourselves those to be true and rationalize it psychologically and somehow view us as, view ourselves as the victims. And, you know, um, when I think about when it comes to law enforcement, I feel like it's also kind of, they act upon it because they feel like it's justified and stuff like that. And it's a way of kind of maintaining the power that they somehow have, right? They think mm-hmm. that they have over um, black bodies and stuff like that. And they somehow yeah. rationalize that fear and justify it in order to justify their actions when essentially they didn't really, really think through the ways in which they you know, mm-hmm. harm, you know, black lives and, and others as well. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think, um, yeah, I kind of want to come back to your specialty in public health a little bit. So now that we've kind of talked about how, I guess, you know, law enforcement might feel like because of their power that they have, that they can act a certain way um, and kind of deal with the fear that they might have for individuals. How are, like, are there any health impacts or, yeah, health impacts of racism and racial bias on the victims and of the, um, yeah, on the victims of racism? Yeah, for sure. There's so much literature and research and work around how racism impacts health. Um, A lot of the focus is definitely Mm -hmm. on mental health, such as depression, anxiety, and trauma. And I think one example in which I can explain like how mental health outcomes about is like kind of like the internalized racism. Internalized racism is in a sense like kind of refers to the internal challenges that black indigenous people of color experience, you know, when they absorb all this messaging from society that that are relatively negative, right? Um, and that and somehow that forms in self hate low self-esteem, feelings of not belonging, feelings of inferiority, exclusion, unwanted and loved, right? So in a way, like if you live through that for like your whole life, right? Um, I stress in my lecture that racism is a chronic stressor. So it's it's kind of this never-ending burden and stress in being able in, because you're navigating in a world that, you know, wasn't made for you, it was isn't for you, essentially, right, for some reason. And um, that stress, um, specifically when you have all this stress, you have all this cortisol in your body for a lot of extended periods of time, right, that's super harmful, damaging to your cells, damaging to your organs. And the way in which we can see how racism impacts health is like, say, for example, high blood pressure from stress, um, heart disease disparities you see from black folks, high infant and maternal maternal mortality for like black mothers, right? Because a lot of the health systems we have set up weren't really created, you know, for us, right? For black indigenous, for people of color. Um, so, you know, yeah. I think an easy example is the way like medical practice and pain management and treatment 
for like say black versus white folks, you know, that's one's a, a typical example of how just racial bias in the way we, um, the way health providers give like pain treatment, like they'll give less pain treatment or less dose to um, black folks because of this assumption that um, they, they're stronger, they can handle pain more biologically when this than somehow, right? But it's not true. And that can be definitely like harm, harmful as well. Yeah. It's like, it's just a circle. Like they're feeling all of these, they're going through all of these problems because of, you know, the ra- the racial issues and tensions that they're that other people are imposing on them, and then that's causing them to be even more troubled, and it's just it's never ending. Uh, right. Yeah, it hits at very various levels, and I think that's why. Yeah, it's racism is a public health issue, mm-hmm. um, and it should be more um, um, noted as a public health issue as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think we're almost out of time here, so I kind of want to take this back around to the topic of racial bias because i think that is what is at the center of these issues as we've you know discussed this episode right now i just kind of want to know now that we know um what it is and why it happens do you have any tips on how we can try to overcome it say that um i guess like going back our brains are flexible and plastic and capable of unlearning racial biases right so i mean if you look at it this way you know the way we learn and retain things is like through the wiring of our brain cells aka neurons and their connections right the more we use it the stronger it is the less we use it the weaker it gets right so if we actively engage in those you know wirings of like learning anti-racist literature and science all that stuff we can reshape the wiring of our brain and you know and allowing us to be critical and thoughtful in ways um we understand the world and, you know, what we thought was in what was true in science and medicine history. Um, I think we have to be critical and really backtrack and see how that might have been influenced by racial biases and, and stuff like that. And then change it from there. And um, I think that's more like an individual-like level and stuff like that. But there's also other ways in which you can um, overcome bias. It's really working with working for the communities that are impacted, you know, supporting them, uplifting their voices, and kind of like learning from them as well, right? Standing up and speaking out. Um, Definitely accepting that we don't live in a post-racial world. You know, racism isn't fixed because the Civil Rights Act has been signed, right? Um, Racism racism is pervasive and does have the ability to change forms throughout time. So kind of like, it really requires us to be very critical, educated, informed, and active. And I think that's what these protests are trying to say, right? It's like, um, there's definitely, there's no better time than now to start, especially if you're new, to start learning. There's so many resources out there right now to learn about kind of how racism impacts others in various aspects, policy, health, housing, and all that stuff like that. And yeah. And acknowledging that racism is at various levels, right? Interpersonal, person-to-person, education, workplace, and policy. And it does really start individual, but, you know, with more individuals coming in together and 
learning and accepting anti-racist like movements and theories and stuff like that, I think it's a it's a way forward. Amazing. All right, so I think that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much, Tao. It was a pleasure talking to you. Um, and thank you everyone for listening. I hope everyone is taking care of themselves and others who need support right now. And I hope this episode helped you all in some way. I know it helped me. And thank you. And please check out our previous episodes for more amazing content.